Okay, so welcome to this uh, retreat, a nice meditation retreat for the weekend. And one of the reasons why I started with a few funny stories is just because when people come onto a retreat, sometimes they get so tense, as if this is like a torture chamber in here. But, and this happened once when one retreat which I was teaching, the gentleman who drove me to the retreat center just confessed to me that every time he went into the meditation hall, he thought he was entering the uh, torture chamber. That's what he called it to himself. But please never look at meditation to be hard or torturous. So instead I renamed the meditation hall Club Med. <laughs> Standing for meditation. <laughs> and just thinking of it that way, the great joy and happiness which will come when we have a calm body and a peaceful mind where we're not carrying many burdens around with us. That is like lightness, relaxation, peace, happiness. And it all comes from what the Buddha called the gradual training. So all the stuff which I teach is almost directly from the suttas. And uh, maybe teaching them in modern jargon, but still very well founded in the words of the Buddha. And if anyone ever wants to doubt that, you know, are we supposed to enjoy meditation? Or are we supposed to suffer? Uh, is it supposed to be no pain, no gain? No, that's not the meditation of Buddhism which I learnt. It is a path of happiness. Upon happiness. Upon happiness. Upon happiness. Whoa! <laughs> because it's changing the idea what meditation does for you. And in one of those suttas, the Dhamma Chaitya Sutta, there, you don't have to remember the name, that's Pali. But in that sutta, there was a king who used to go visit the Buddha as often as he could. And he came towards the end of the king's life and he went to visit the Buddha for the last time. And he said to the, uh, the Buddha, I really enjoy coming to your monastery. Why? said the Buddha. Because every time I come in here, I see all of your monastics happy and smiling, joyful. And the Buddha said, yeah, that's what you can expect when people are meditating and getting insights. All those old problems vanish away. And all of those fears of things which haven't happened yet disappear. 
and you're really enjoying this moment. Just imagine this moment in a retreat center, safe, and the person teaching you, your boss for the weekend, is such a kind, gentle, not demanding, happy, peaceful, nice boss, who will <laughs> always be kind to you, not telling you what to do, but teaching you how to relax and find peace and stillness. And this retreat title, Wisdom Born of Stillness. It's an old simile that if, if you have the opportunity to go up a mountain or a hill on a calm and peaceful night. Not like today. I wouldn't go out of this, this complex uh, on a night like this. Windy and rainy and everything howling. It's nice to be inside. Nice and cozy in this beautiful retreat center. Safe, secure and if you do ever have the opportunity on a still night, on a still full moon night to go up a mountain and you see a lake, a lake in the mountains, only if that lake is perfectly still, only if there are no waves on the surface of the water, only then could you see a perfect reflection of the full moon and the mountains and the sky above. If there is a little ripple in that lake, if there is a tiny disturbance in the body of water, it will distort the image. And in many Far Eastern traditions, they say that's the only time to really see the full moon. The only way when you see it reflected in a peaceful body of water. This is called the wisdom born of stillness. Seeing things as they truly are reflected in your peaceful, still mind. Ooh, that's beautiful. So to be able to do that, the great gradual path, is first of all, we learn to relax. How can you be peaceful when you are trying? So here we go. For those who haven't seen this before, this is one of my little similes. And... Was that how was that girl when she's uh, Lushani's daughter when she first saw this? Oh, yes, she was there. Six. Anyway, six, and she still remembers this. So these little teachings. First of all, I am now going to make this water be perfectly still. The water represents my mind. Now I'm going to try and keep it still. Okay. Are you an honest nun, Venerable Chanda? This is Venerable Chanda, by the way. She is my assistant for this evening. 
Is it still? No. Why is that? Yeah, I'm not even looking at it. I'm not even being mindful. So now I'll be mindful. Has it stopped shaking yet? Yeah, I, I really am. You know, I'm trying to make this still. Now, I, the thing is, I'm not concentrating, so I'm now going to concentrate. Is it still moving? Yeah. Yeah. Now, and I made a face. Because as a meditation teacher, sometimes I open my eyes early and see you meditators, and I close my eyes as soon as I possibly can, because it's scary <laughs> looking at you. <laughs> so anyway, so I'm concentrating again. Have you ever tried meditating, and you're mindful, and you're concentrated, and you still can't get your mind to be tranquil. Why? Because that's not the way to meditate. Instead, what you do is put the glass down. It's moving. Okay, Venerable Chanda. Perfectly still. And I can maintain that for long periods of time because I've just let it go. So, do some of you get why it is that often we don't enjoy the stillness and peace of deep meditation? That was my simile. Ajahn Chah's simile, just to give it a bit more uh, authority by quoting these old teachers, I spent nine years with him, he would often lift up his hand and he'd shake it like this and he would say, this represents a leaf on a tree or on a bush. The only reason why it moves like this is because of the wind. But when the wind stops, the leaf still shakes, but less and less and less until after a short while the leaf becomes perfectly still because that's its nature. It only moves because something outside of it makes it move. But, if we stop the wind, or wait until the wind uh, subsides, then we'll see the leaf on a tree come to its natural state of stillness. And then Ajahn Chah would say, that is the same with your mind. It only moves because something external to it makes it move. You know what that is? Wanting, craving. For those of you who've been around Buddhism a long time, don't know how. Or if you want it, expressed in a very simple way. When you want something more, you can't enjoy what you already have. That's the four noble truths in one line.
desire, when you stop wanting, your brain, your mind becomes very peaceful. Things stop moving and you enjoy deep peace and happiness. So the gradual training means that once one starts to stop and to relax and put things down, let go of your burdens, you find that the meditation becomes very peaceful and very easy and very happy. So how do we actually do that? Because sometimes we have to tell people what to do. It's really, sometimes it's almost like feeling a fraud. I'm telling people how to do nothing. Because nothing is one of the hardest things to do. <laughs> In fact, people don't know how to do nothing. What am I supposed to do? Nothing. Okay, I'll tell that other lovely story about uh, the person uh, who you know, wanted to, to have uh, bhikkhuni chanda. She's an English bhikkhuni. How many bhikkhuni is a fully ordained Buddhist Theravada woman? Fully ordained. Just like a fully ordained monk. And so somebody gave a call to her uh, Wihara, the Anukampa Bikuni project. And they asked her, can you come? Can you come today? I need some, some ceremony performed. And she said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, today I'm busy. And the caller said, what are you doing today? And Venerable Bikuni, she said, nothing. I'm doing nothing. That's really important for bhikkhunis to teach by example, to relax, to meditate, to be still, instead of running around all over the place. So she said, today I'm doing nothing. And the caller understood and said, well done. At last is somebody who really knows how to meditate. And they called the next day <coughs> and said, ah, oh, <laughs> Ayachanda, can you please come to, that's, that's the, the, the term for a Buddhist nun, call them ayah. So there must be ayah than the monks. <laughs> or if you want to say, say it in brief, you say ayah, ayah. Higher, ayah, okay, no, I'll, I'll try my best. <laughs> but anyway, they called the second day and they got through to the bhikkhuni and they said ayah, can you please come to my house today? And he said, no, sorry, I can't come. I'm busy. Well, you were busy yesterday. What are you doing today? And she replied, same as yesterday, nothing. He said, well, that was your excuse yesterday. Why can't you come today? Because I'm not finished yet, said the nun. <laughs> so please, get nothing out of the way, first of all, before you do anything else. Rest, relax, find peace and wisdom. Then all the other stuff can be done. But anyway, the back to the gradual training. So, in order to allow the mind to be peaceful and calm, we do our, uh, the precepts, the precepts, all those rules which we have to keep. To me, they're just so sensible. If you can't remember the five ethical principles, did I say ethical? 
instead of ethical. Yeah, because I was born in London. Ethical. <laughs> Actually, I was, I, I was brought up in the bush. Shepherd's bush, not the real bush. <laughs> but anyway, to <laughs> if to be ethical, the ethical precepts all boil down to two precepts. If you can't keep my five precepts, just keep two precepts. You know what those two precepts are? Not doing anything which harms another being. Not doing anything which harms yourself. That was taught by the Buddha to his son Rahula. Not doing anything which harms another being. So be kind to the people around you. If you have to get up and leave at any time for any reason, again, this is not an army camp. It's not school. You don't have to put your hand up. Ajahn Bob, can I go toilet, please? <laughs> you just get up and go. <laughs> Trust yourself. But if you do, do it very peacefully, very calmly. It can be done calmly because there were these two meditators in Perth. But you know, they were lay people, they were, they were at home relaxing, watching a movie. And after the movie was finished, the wife went to make a cup of tea, husband just went to the toilet, and only when they got up from the sofa did they find many things were missing. Even the, from the shelf behind their sofa, the burglar had had the cheek, the nerve, to be able to go in and steal things right from behind the sofa. And they didn't hear anything. So, if a burglar could be quiet, surely you can. In other words, if you do need to um, leave for any reason whatsoever, you may feel a bit sick, a bit tense, whatever, during this retreat, see if you could stand up without making a noise, to walk quietly, to go to the door and open it without anyone hearing you, and close it without anyone knowing you've gone out or knowing you've come in. It just takes a bit of mindfulness and care. Burglars can do it. So surely you can. You're much higher than a burglar, I hope. Or maybe, I don't know, that's maybe where the burglars get their training from, for one of my retreats. I don't know, but anyway, I'm sure not. But you can do it calmly. One of my monks I had for some time ago, he was from Nepal. He was a Gurkha. He was in the British Army, Gurkha, and then he retired and he became a monk at my monastery in Australia. And he told me the Gurkhas, they're really highly trained, fierce soldiers. And he told me, you always know that a Gurkha has, has, has come into your, your um, uh, whatever, your, the, into the enemy's troops. The only way the enemy knows that the Gurkhas have been there, because they come in silently, they leave silently. He said, when you wake up in the morning and you shake your head, it falls off.
That's the sign the Gurkhas have been. <laughs> and when he said that, they have these big Gurkha knives. They're known for it. And uh, we were a bit scared at first. But then he said, well, you know, not all Gurkhas are frontline soldiers. He worked in accounts. He's a very kind and nice fellow, and very gentle and funny. So, um, even bad people can actually do things so silently. So please, see if you can walk silently, coming in, going out, you know, using your rooms you know, to open the doors and close them silently. That is just a sense of training. Because if you can do that quietly, if you can eat your food quietly, you actually appreciate it much more. I don't know the cooks and this place. The last time I came here, the cook was amazing. I only had a lunch, because I just gave a talk, stayed overnight and had a lunch before I left. But, delicious. So they spent all this energy and effort in feeding you. So can't you can't you eat it silently, so you can enjoy it. Mm, such wonderful food, enjoying the taste. Because if you talk or think, you're shoveling stuff into your mouth not knowing what it is, and unmindful, uncaring, poor old cook. All the energy and effort, so when you put food in the mouth, one spoon at a time. Mm. Enjoy it, swallow it, and then the next. Little by little, we train ourselves to be here silently. And for that silence, that stillness, encourage you to be a listener, not a talker. I don't mean talking with your mouth, I mean talking in your head. Don't be a talker in your head, in other words, a thinker. There's a conversation which goes you know, from our mouths. There's another conversation which goes in our brain, the commentary. And if you're thinking about something, you can't be listening. The beautiful ex Hear those raindrops? They're peaceful. If you have a commentary about them, you can't hear them. If you're silent, you can appreciate them usual story which I tell on retreats is from Lao Tzu. would go for a walk every evening, would have an attendant young monk to accompany him and this one young man coming with the master for the first time when they reached a particularly scenic ridge in the mountains at sunset the sunset was such an amazing, beautiful sunset. The young man couldn't help but say, wow, look at that beauty in the evening sky. The crimsons, the golds, the oranges. 
And at that, Lao Tzu turned around, walked back to the monastery, and only when he got back to the monastery did he say, you are not allowed to come on a walk with me ever again. You broke the golden rule of silence. What, what's wrong with saying and appreciating a, a beautiful sunset? Because, said the teacher, when you said what a beautiful sunset that was, you weren't watching the sunset anymore. You were only watching the words. You weren't listening or experiencing the sunset. You were listening to the words. The words and the thing are different. So in order to even appreciate food, we learn how to be silent. To be able to listen to the sound of the rain or the wind, we listen. Sometimes people think, oh, it's just too difficult to be silent. The mind is always thinking about something. And I will now demonstrate, some people have heard this simile before, but it works. I will now demonstrate what silence is. So as I am speaking, I also would like you to be aware of what's going on in your mind. As I am speaking, you will begin to notice that there will be many spaces between my words. In those pauses, what was growing on in your head? Because you never knew when I was going to start speaking again. You were paused. Still. Waiting in the moment. Silently. And I hope that when you experience silence, you also understand, appreciate directly how profound it is. There's something sacred in silence. Which is why monks, nuns, hermits would often seek out the wilderness areas, the caves, the mountain tops, the deserts, where everything was just so silent. It's almost like something holy, if you like, spiritually deep in silence. When instead of thinking about the world, we're listening to her. With all our senses open to being taught, instead of working it out for ourselves. So that's the, the silence. So, for a gradual training, the Buddha said he gets happier and happier and happier. So during this retreat, be kind to your body. That it's wonderful to see there's a few chairs here. If during this day that you find you've got a bad back, you've got pain in the back, 
don't try and beat the pain with your insurance. Trying to sort of be bigger than the pain. That's quite a lot of ego, thinking that you can conquer things. The idea of conquering and being a victor. Sometimes you see, ev I used to like walking up in the mountains. When you walk up very steep mountains, you get to the summit, you see someone always puts a flag up there. That's the old days, they put a flag up there. These days they don't put a flag, they put a mobile phone tower, or maybe a restaurant. Can't they leave emptiness alone and just have the bare peak in the mountain, untouched as it always was, to revere silence and respect it, rather than always thinking that somebody conquered it. So, in this gradual training, I'm going to give a little simile now, which is one of those similes worked out, which is, to me, it's just almost a perfect simile about what happens in meditation. And it was a simile of the thousand-petaled lotus. You may notice any lotuses in the back there. Sometimes you see lotus flowers as a symbol of Buddhism. And the thousand-petaled lotus, the Tibetan chant, Om Mani Padmi Hum. Where does that come from? Om and Hum are just words of respect. The key words are Mani Padmi, which is the jewel in the heart of the lotus. If anybody knows these things, Padmi is the locative case of, of Padma, or lotus. Jewel in lotus. What does that mean? A lotus is closed up at night time. And if you look at the outermost layer of petals, the sheath of that lotus, it's thick. It has no scent. It is not beautiful. In fact, it's all dusty and dirty because it has to take the force of the winds and the storms and things hitting it is protective. But in the early morning, when the warmth and the light of the sun strike that lotus, then the outermost petal opens to reveal the first, maybe proper petal inside. That is thick still that has got some color and some fragrance. But it also means that that is now able to receive the light and the warmth of the sun until that opens out. And the next layer of petals can receive the light and the warmth of the sun. One layer after the other when the outer layers open up, it reveals the inner layers, so that can receive the warmth and light of the sun, and it too can open up. A gradual opening of a lotus flower. And as you go deeper and deeper into the lotus, the scent, the fragrance,
gets more strong, almost overpowering in its beauty, and the the uh, subtlety of the colours in the inner part of the lotus are just very beautiful, and they're so so delicate. The deeper you go in, the more beautiful, profound, colourful, overpowering are those inner petals of the lotus. So, what's that got to do with meditation? You are that lotus, that body of mind. And some of you have been through so much Please excuse me, shit in life. Lots of difficulties, lots of problems. You've been battered by the storms of life. And sometimes you look at the outermost petals, the sheath of you, and you think that person's got no hope of any, any spiritual progress. But when you understand the symmetry uh, of the lotus, you know, all that lotus needs to open up, to reveal what's inside, is the warmth and light of the sun. What does that mean? The light of the sta sun stands for mindfulness, awareness. And the warmth, that's a, a, a warmth stands for kindness. Awareness and kindness onto your body, onto your mind, opens you out. And I've been teaching, medita teaching meditation for, I don't know, how many years now? You know the first meditation, big meditation class I ever taught was just in Devon. I was a teacher at King's School, Lottery St. Mary in 1973. Yeah, I think 73, could be, yeah, no, yeah, 73. And you had to do the school assembly. And I asked the principal, the headmaster, could I do whatever I like? Yeah, as long as it's religious, sort of. I said, but I'm not a Christian, can I do some Buddhist meditation? He thought it was a really neat idea. So I had 650 children in the morning assembly, all sitting on the floor. And I came up and I said, I'm now going to teach you some Buddhist meditation. So first of all, uh, first of all, close your eyes. And they all did. And now, straighten your backs. And they all straightened their backs. Put one hand on the other on your lap. And they all did. This is no, no joke. They did this. And tuck in your chin. And now just watch the breath go in and out for five minutes. And I was really quite surprised just how obedient they were. Usually in classes they weren't that obedient, but here they followed every instruction. And afterwards, after five minutes, they were absolutely still. Even the, the teachers there, they were stunned too. They'd never seen kids in a high school be so quiet for five minutes. After the meditation was finished, I never asked for this. It happened 
automatically, spontaneously, they all gave me an ovation, clapping loudly. And that was really moving. Somehow or other, the peace had touched every kid in that school. And not one kid sort of started giggling. That was an amazing experience. But anyway, I've been teaching meditation a lot since that time. And when you teach meditation, sometimes I can't tell, after all that experience, who is going to get really deep and blissed out, positively. Because one day, one day at my retreat center in Australia, a gentleman came in to register, you know, as you register here. And I took one look, he was big. He was rough. He was wearing Australian national dress, which was a t-shirt, a dirty t-shirt, shorts, and a pair of flip-flops. <laughs> which allowed me to see incredible numbers of tattoos all over his body. He looked like a real you who belonged more to the Hell's Angels than to a Buddhist retreat center. I stereotyped him. Not far from the place where I live, there is a prison. And I said, I think you've got the wrong place. The prison's up the, up the road six kilometers if you want to visit some of your friends. <laughs> I make some big mistakes sometimes. He looked at me and said, no, I'm not lost. I'm not trying to find the prison. I'm registered for your retreat. And I looked at his, his name was down there. So I thought I'd never seen him before. Never expected someone like that to come on my retreat. Stupid monk, stereotyping, judging people. And you know what happened? He got these incredibly deep meditations. And I thought, wow, even if you have a lotus, which is all tattooed on the outside, <laughs> dirty, and you don't expect what's inside. You know, the other B word I'm not supposed to mention, but I cannot resist it. Even if Boris Johnson came on his retreat, I'm sure I could open him up and see the see the beauty inside, the deep peace and compassion and respect for Jeremy Corbyn and all the Europeans. <laughs> it's in there somewhere, it just needs to be opened out with the warmth and the light of the sun. <laughs> He's also got a jewel in the heart of whatever he is. But, <laughs> but the reason I say that, it gives hope for every one of you. If you follow the instructions, just being kind, <coughs> being mindful, keeping it simple. It's amazing how things open. So, how one does that? Sitting down, you close your eyes, and you be aware of your body sitting here. For goodness sake, be kind to it. Don't force it. You get aches and pains, and then you get sick, and you never want to meditate again. It's just too painful. Don't force it. Relax your body. And even relaxing the body, being aware of it, being kind to it. And at the very least, you get incredible health benefits by mm. just being able to be aware and being kind. Look, this guy with sinus cancer came to a retreat, nine day retreat. <laughs> Other retreatants, they uh, asked me, could you please tell people to breathe quietly? in the meditation hall. 
disturbing everybody. And I had to explain to everyone, he couldn't do anything else. He had this big tumour in his sinuses. That's the only way he could breathe. His doctors had given up on him. He was terminal. You know, I'm really sort of subject to oh, all these because I go to you know, travel around and you know you go into airports. It's very dangerous when you go through airports, you know, getting viruses. And if I do get a virus, you know what I call it? Terminal illness. <laughs> <laughs> you get it at the terminal. Terminal 2 illness, if you go overseas, back to Australia, be careful. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> so, um, uh, where was I with this? Uh, sorry? Oh, sinus guy, yes. Thank you so much. <laughs> so the sinus guy, breathing in and out, and as soon as everyone is really kind and compassionate, if you realise what people are doing and why they're doing it, and I, as soon as I said that, no one complained. Uh, they even may have said to me, oh, come on, you can breathe as loud as you like, because it was the you know, last throw of the dice before death. But this guy, this guy, at the very end of the retreat, followed the retreat, and he had a popping sound. Pop. He could breathe again. It was like a miracle, but he came running to me and he said, but only lasted one minute, he said. He could breathe through his nose for one minute and then you know, I had to leave and I thought, yeah, he left it too late. Just like when you do your revision or you do your homework the night before the exam, a bit late, isn't it? But nevertheless, six months later, I met him again. But it's one of these cases, I didn't know who the heck he was. You know, this fellow came up to me and said, do you remember me? Now please, out of compassion, don't come up to me and say, do you remember me? Because I meet so many people and I live in the present moment, I have to let go and simplify my memory. <laughs> Who are you anyway? <laughs> so anyway, this guy came up. <laughs> said, Who, do you remember me? I said, I, I've got a clue who you are. It was that guy. He carried on this meditation of like opening up his eyes, just relaxing, and his blooming tumor went. And of course, when you're sick with cancer, you know you do, you look really sort of um, a different person. You know, literally a shadow walking. And now he got over his cancer. And wow, he looked so healthy and so like fawn. He just wanted to come up and say thanks a lot for for teaching me that meditation. I asked him what he was up to and he said, I'm going to spend the rest of my life, however many months I've got, teaching others how to meditate that way. So joyful to hear things like that. And the point was, I never expected he could open up his lotus so much. Just with kindness. And gentle, gentleness is part of kindness. And mindfulness as well. So be aware of your body. How is it? feel that pain, that ache, I'm going to be kind to it. And it totally relaxes. Until the body feels so comfortable, it vanishes. You don't f need to feel it anymore. Just like, you know, when you co get comfortable in bed at night, it relaxes so you don't feel the body, you can actually go to sleep. So, 
once you've been kind and gentle to your body, that opens up. And then you get to your emotional world inside. And in that emotional world inside, the mind, sometimes people say, what the heck is the mind? So I usually start with mindfulness of the peaceometer. Always trying to find words to actually to help with the meditation. You've got a thermometer, so you can know what temperature it is. If you drive a car, you've got your speedometer, so you know if you're going too fast. So this is called the peaceometer. It's inside your mind. So you ask yourself, after getting the body still, the peaceometer, how peaceful are you? Or how agitated? You can even do this now, you don't have to close your eyes. From one to ten, give it a number. One is really peaceful. Ten is very agitated. Zero is dead. So don't go down there. <laughs> From one to ten, how peaceful are you? What's the reading on your peaceometer? Now, what makes that reading go down closer to one? What makes you more agitated? Learn the cause of peace. Because once you relax your mind, make your mind peaceful, it's one incredible thing to learn. Simple. If anyone who's been to many more retreats, that's basically the third Satipatthana. I'll explain that to you later if you really need to know, but it's understanding the mind, the jitta, the origins of disturbed states and the origins of calm states. So this is understanding fundamental things about your emotional world. Now of course, you've opened up into the mind, give it some peace, and you know what really makes the mind agitated, one of the things is worrying about the future and carrying the burden of the past. You know you don't have to carry the past around. But if you do want to carry the past around, how about carrying the happy memories of the past around? I've been to many people's houses for this, that, or whatever, and they have photos on the wall, photos on the mantel shelf. I look at those photos and they're happy photos. There are times that when they got married, the times when they uh, graduated, the times where they were on holiday somewhere with their friends and their relations and their kids. All these happy memories they put around their house. These days I have them on their phones. All oh, the happy memories of uh, having lunch with Ajahn Brahm this morning. <laughs> I should show those because some of them are just really funny. <laughs> but anyway, they're happy photos. Why do we have happy photos on our walls? And what we remember in our mind are the terrible photos, the divorce. the death, the sickness, 
having to go to work. You see photos of being on holiday, but how many of you got photos on the wall of queuing up for security, of, of <laughs> doing a pat-down, of waiting for this flight to take off, and then being crammed like sardines well, with one another. Do you have take photos of that? Not only happy memories. How many of you have happy how many of you have got photographs of when you're in hospital? Really sick. No one keeps photographs of that except in their memory. Really stupid. So if you go out and get a carry any photographs around, carry the beautiful photographs. The wonderful times have you had with someone who may not be here today. The joyful times you've had. The times that when you did do something and had a great and wonderful day. Not the time when it all went wrong. You learn more from success, from happiness, than you ever learn from failure. Learn from what went right. Just like you have a relationship. I'm going off, off message anyway, but who cares? <laughs> no, I don't anyway. <laughs> Actually, I do care, but care to teach things which are really useful. You have a relationship. You have a wonderful day together. Do you remember that, or do you take it for granted? Why can't we, at the end of a wonderful day together, ask yourself, why? Why do we enjoy this day so much? What, are, what was the causes? Can we recreate those causes? Instead of when it all goes wrong, then we really think, no, why did that go wrong? Because you know, of you. No, because of you, because of somebody else. Remember successes. Number one, they motivate you. They give you energy. And you learn the secrets of peace and happiness. So, that's why, if you are going to remember anything, remember the beautiful stuff. For those of you who are traditional Buddhists, it's called Chaganusati, Siranusati, or the remembering of the generosity of your kindness, of, of, of your precepts, of being good or whatever. And actually, remember that, you learn something. I don't know, you've only seen me for half an hour, do I look like a happy monk? I'm a miserable man. <laughs> I just hope so, after 45 years of being a bhikkhu. You know, actually, for being a bhikkhu for 45 years, that when you are 10 years as a monk, they give you this title, terror. It means like an elder. After 20 years, you get the title, Mahatera means uh, a big elder. And that's it. No more career structure. <laughs> <laughs> you live like that. So I, ch I like changing things. Innovation. So my innovation is after 30 years, after Maha should be mega. Mega terror. <laughs> and after 40 years, giga terror. <laughs> and that explains. <laughs> Well, I love telling jokes. <laughs> I'm a giggle terror. <laughs> so anyway, we're back to uh, the gradual training. So, 
<laughs> I'm going to stop giggling at you, Bob. <laughs> so anyway, that, that little good memories, yes. And <laughs> you're in the present moment. Good memories, and that makes you happy, joyful, energizes you. Number two, the future. Oh, it may be okay having a happy memory now. Yeah, this weekend you don't have anything to worry about. Free, peaceful, entertained by the uh, uh, great monk and a great nun. Wow, but when you have to go back to work, oh my goodness, facing all your problems, oh, please remember that now is the place where your future is being made. Right now, you're creating your future. This is the only place you can do anything about your future. Right now. So if you go off thinking about Saturday, Sunday, you are sacrificing your future. You are actually neglecting it by planning. Instead, get the head around now is where your future is being made. This is the most important time be here. And you'll find the future becomes so much better. You're afraid of the biopsy results, f afraid of, you know, the company's going to sack you or whatever, or Brexit's going to happen or whatever. Leave that. Look at this moment. Make this moment beautiful. Energize. You're empowering yourself to face almost any possibilities. Now is where your future is being made. So, the kindness, the warmth, brings you into this moment. You're here. And one of the reasons people can't stay in this moment is because they don't like it. Be kind to now. And now stays with you. Every petal of this lotus, every stage, is like my best friend. If, if you go out to dinner with your best friend, do you tell your friend what to eat, how to eat it, where to sit? You never do that. It's your friend. You enjoy one another's company. But with your breath, or with your meditation, yeah, breath, you go in this way. This way, this way. Not too fast, not too slow. You do it this way, and you, you stay, don't you go anywhere, breathing, doing the breath meditation. No wonder the breath doesn't like you and runs away as soon as it can. That's why people wander off. Because whatever you're watching looks upon you as a control freak. Do you like being with a control freak? Of course not. Do you like being with someone who just respects you, listens to you, and you don't need to be perfect. You just want to chill out together. Do you like being with people like that? Of course. So imagine your mind. Awareness always has to go with kindness and respect. And then your lotus starts to open up. Present moment. And this present is not as bad as people think once you get to know it and befriend it. Here I am. Hey. I'm here. I've arrived, baby. I've arrived. I'm here. 
now. You're in this moment, your lotus is opening up. It's really nice just being here. And then you like this present moment so much, you become still, peaceful. There's no need to say anything. When you are content and happy, your mind becomes very peaceful. If ever you do, say, go out and see a sunset, and it really is gorgeous. It makes you very still. And you just even saying anything seems to to not be required in beauties of nature. You become awestruck, which is another word for being silent. Seeing the stars at night in Australia. And uh, the Red Trade Centre I've got over there, you can sometimes people at middle of the night after the talk they just lay back on some of the, the platforms and they just look at the stars. Clear, beautiful, a warm night. It's gorgeous. They don't say anything. No need to. Because beauty of what's right in front of your eyes is enough to satisfy the brain. This is why when there's joy in this moment you can't speak. You cannot even think. You're poised in this moment. The lotus is really opening up now. And then, afterwards, oops. Yeah, I live in the present moment. Are you okay? It's nine o'clock now, but it's okay for a few more minutes. Enjoying it? Okay. So then, you open up this lotus and you're in this beautiful, silent, present moment. You know what happens next? You start being aware of your breath. It's natural, it's the only thing which is moving. You're silent, you're not making a conversation, and you just hear the breath going in and out. And you will find, as obviously, that I know as the truth and many other people say, oh yeah, Chambram, yeah, yeah, you're right. If you watch the breath and go looking for it, then when you find it, it's never natural. It's never peaceful. But when you make your mind peaceful first with si present moment awareness and silence, relaxing the body, relaxing the mind, then when the breath comes up, it's just so smooth and gentle. And it doesn't go anywhere. You don't have to force your mind to hold the breathing. That's crazy stuff. You just calm the mind down and that's all that's left. It's breathing in and breathing out. It's peaceful. It's satisfying. Not force. And then, opening the lotus, you got to the breath level in the lotus. And that's pretty nice, pretty sweet. And then, as you watch more and more, more mindfulness, more kindness, oh, my poor breath. You know, I'm 68 years and a bit I've been alive. My breath has never let me down once. Which is why I'm still alive. I look at my day and night, busy, sick, traveling, my breath has been doing this constantly. Sometimes I look at my breath and say, thank you. 
this beautiful gratitude for this breathing, which you know, has done so much for me. That makes the breath easy to watch. When you have gratitude towards somebody, it's so easy to be their friend. And so my breath is my breath going in and going, oh, thanks, guy. Thanks. Yeah, you've been so good to me. And then the breath just goes in and goes out. We chill out together. We hang out together. Just almost inseparable friends. And quite frankly, that you know, sometimes I'm busy teaching, talking, doing stuff. And then when I've got time to stop and meditate, the best simile I can give is my breath comes up and says, Hey, where you been? Oh yeah, I've been teaching. Oh yeah, I understand. And my breath and I, we just hang out together as long as we can. Best friends. And then I really know my breath very well. You open up the lotus, you get the full awareness of the breath, beginning to end. Oh, yeah. A hundred different sensations just in one in-breath. You see the gap between the breaths. When the in-breath is finished, the out-breath is yet to begin. The pause. And then the out-breath begins. Whoa. I'm not weird or crazy. <laughs> this is in the suttas. So it's really joyful just watching this breath. And then see the whole of the breath and the breath because it becomes very peaceful, very soft. It's just like when you make friends first of all, they don't really open up to you yet. And when they show you their real true nature, the beautiful nature of a breath, it becomes delightful. So you're sitting there watching your breath, great friends spend hours together, you get joy with the breath. You're happy. One of my meditators, she had to beg, she said, and grovel from her boss to get the week off to do a meditation retreat. And she told me afterwards, but when she went back to work, you know, high position somewhere in Sydney, her boss sent her this email, and, and she sent an email on to me. And she said, the boss was asking, what on earth did they give you in that meditation retreat center? I don't matter what drug it was, but please bring me back some next time. <laughs> Notice incredible joy and happiness and relaxation came. Simply because you allow that happiness and joy to arise. First with the breath. You're getting into the beautiful lotus petals. What do you do? Just be mindful, just be kind. And then the meditation really starts to take off. Inside that lotus, the breath disappears. It gets overpowered by delight, by joy, happiness. It was weird because at first I thought religion, you had to suffer. If you weren't suffering and experiencing pain, there was something wrong with you. Crazy idea. Somebody once said, the Puritan religion. The Puritan religion is defined by fear. What fear? 
the fear that somewhere, someone is enjoying themselves. <laughs> That's re really hard to, to accept. But to have this peace and happiness and joy, just with simple things like the breath, accessible. Breath vanishes and delight comes up. Like the simile of the Cheshire cat in Alice in Wonderland, where the cat kept on appearing and disappearing at random, and Alice said it's just really difficult that you keep coming and going so quickly. And so the Cheshire cat said, okay, I will disappear slowly. And disappeared limb by limb, ear by ear, whisker by whisker, until eventually they just had a smile on the cat's lips. And then the lips vanished. And Alice said, I've often seen a cat without a smile, but this is the first time I've seen a smile without a cat. <laughs> Lewis Carroll, Charles Dodgson, he was wonderful with words. And this is what happens, the joy without the breath. Delight. And that gets even more. Experiencing the mind. Mind is radiant and joyful when all this wanting disappears. You're blissing out. Ooh. And please don't be afraid when this happens. Because that's one of the things, that's one of the reasons I say it. It's meant to happen. There's nothing wrong with having some happiness in your spiritual life. And number two, it's incredibly great for the bodily health and for your mental health, for your energy. You've got, woof, you've got a boost of energy. And also, you really know what stillness can lead to. Very bright, very aware. Seeing things you never expected to see. And you get deep into happiness and bliss. Whoa! Good fun. And if you don't have any happiness during this retreat, what's the point? Happiness is the absence of suffering. So, we're supposed to understand suffering and let it go. That's what's supposed to happen. Easy peasy. Just like that glass has been still all this time without me needing to grasp it and hold it. Beautiful peace. So that's what's going to happen. I hope, maybe, who knows. At least it's going to have a start learning how to be wise through stillness. Okay. What do you do now? <laughs> oh, yeah, first day. Oh, it's both sitting. Yeah, it only says sitting. It doesn't say sitting meditation. <laughs> so you've all been sitting, so I managed to fulfill that. Oh, that's tomorrow, anyway. Oh, tomorrow, okay, yeah. I was in the present moment. Okay. Nothing. Black. Okay. Should I just... Maybe one or two questions from the floor? Anyone got a question about what we're saying today? You are allowed to speak in here to ask questions. Oh, you coughed. Ah, oh, that's very profound. <laughs> okay, or do you want to go to bed? Oh yeah, we do have, we do have Q&A tomorrow.
That is between 7.30 and 8.30. So the Q&A, the best way of doing it is write the questions on a piece of paper, which means they're anonymous. So you don't have to be afraid. That, oh, this is a stupid question. But quite frankly, there is no question I've ever had which is stupid. All questions are respected and honoured. Because I learned a long time ago, if you don't ask a question, you know, well if you do ask a question and you feel stupid asking it, you feel more, you only feel stupid for a few minutes. If you don't ask a question, you feel stupid for the rest of your life, for not having the opportunity and not taking it to ask. So if you have a question, it's always respected. So if you don't like to ask a question in public, then you write it down on a piece of paper and we put it in a box, we're going to find a box or a basket or something soon and then put it in there and I'll answer it tomorrow. Well, thank you. There's a question about Ajahn Chah's style of teaching. Ah, yeah. When he was very much saying about if you reading your own heart um, and he, he I, I haven't seen any of his teachings written down where he would be referring Indeed, for uh, Ajahn Chah, again, with him for nine years. I think there's only one monk who's with him longer. I think that was Ajahn Pasano, if you count the days, the months, the years. But I do remember that he, did, he had a basic training in suttas, but he was innovative. And that was actually what was so appealing to him. Not teaching from the theories, but taking the theories, internalizing them, and expressing them in ways you'll never forget. For example, attachment. He took a, I was with him on arms round, uh, he took a stick on the side of the road and he said, Brahma Wangso, how heavy is this? Before I could answer, I just had a look, make sure I didn't hit you. So I, I checked your direction first of all. I was very mindful and kind. Because <laughs> I did that once in Perth, and this poor novice monk sitting next to me, he got it in the head, not in the head, I think in the shoulder. <laughs> it wasn't that bad, but he laughed. Anyway, <laughs> he said, the stick is only heavy when you're holding it. When you let it go, it's light. No weight at all. Your past is only heavy when you hold it. Your fears only heavy when you hold it. You let it go, you throw it away. It's light. It's gone. Teachings like that, oh, anyone can understand them and you remember them, which was really great. So here's some great sort of teachings like the deep ones. Should we do the deep ones now? Yeah. Okay. That there were some personal ones. Because you can't always teach a person when they're not really open for it. So he was having we his last year of life. 
And that last year of, you know, before he had a stroke, he was always feeling a bit dizzy. He was basically working too hard. Always too compassionate. And I say that because that's my teacher. And he was, uh, so we built a sauna for him in our Western monastery. And you know, in that sauna, we'd, he would come every week. But before he had his sauna, he would give a talk. Some of those talks, I say this with the utmost respect, were rubbish. But in those rubbish talks, it was like digging for gold. So much you know, overburden, so much um, stuff which wasn't useful. But then you find a few diamonds, a few pieces of gold, and it was worth it. You know, just to get those few nuggets of wisdom which were priceless. So, maybe rubbish, but inside that rubbish there was always one or two things which were really worthwhile. And next, on this occasion, he was really on form. You know, sometimes, you know, even if you're football players, tennis players, sometimes they just, things don't click. Like a musician. Sometimes everything comes together and they play amazing music. This time, Ajahn Chah really had it to, had everything on, on tune. And he gave a brilliant Dhamma talk. And afterwards, instead of helping my teacher, you know, with his, with his, um, uh, uh, the sauna, I just, wow, I was just so inspired. I went round the back of the hall and just sat on the concrete and meditated. Now when you're inspired, it's so easy to meditate. You've got joy, you've got happiness, it's just like child's play. So you're there just meditating, blissing out, really getting deep. Whoa. And after two hours, I thought maybe could help Ajahn Chah somehow. And so I walked to the sauna, but two hours he finished his sauna, dried his clothes. He was walking back to his car with a Thai man. And that was in the... I, I couldn't turn left or right, we were going to cross paths. And that's when, you know, we were about to uh, cross paths, he looked at me, stopped. And I stopped too. I just had a really amazing meditation. And this was a great monk. And okay, you know, some people think this is, you make these things up, but this is true, I'll stand by this until I die that he read my mind, you could feel him inside. That's the only explanation, the only sort of uh, description you can give. He was in mind, his mind was inside mine, and for once I was very happy he was having a look. <laughs> <laughs> because it was nice and pure and clean. Just like, you know, when you're a kid and your mum checks your bedroom and it's just been tidied up and you think, okay, yeah, you can come in, yeah. It's not always like that, but today you can come and have a look. And he, I obviously he saw that my mind was really clean and pure and, and energised. And so my teacher decided to enlighten me. There and then. He looked at me and said, Brahma Wangsa, why? Really fiercely, but no, with kindness. And I answered, I don't know. <laughs> I was stupid. You know, I wasn't sort of that close. And you know, the great teachers like that, they never, you're never scared of them. He never scolded you. Every time I did something stupid, he laughed. 
I was a great source of entertainment for him. <laughs> With all the silly stuff which we did. So I, he, he laughed he said, and then he got serious again. He said, Brahma Wangso, I'll tell you the answer anyway. I thought, wow. Personal teaching for one of the great masters of this age. He was going to tell me the answer to the question, why? And really get to the heart of these things. No, not messing around with what's dependent on origination, the origin of the world, all that sort of stuff. Why? And I was really listening. And he said to me, the answer to the question why is, are you listening? It's a bit late now. Maybe I'll do this tomorrow morning. Too late. Yeah, tonight. Okay. Change your mind. <laughs> no, I just wider you up. <laughs> answer the question why. He said, the answer is, there's nothing. There's nothing. He looked at me again. Do you understand? I said, yes, I understand. He looked at me again and said, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> and he walked away. <laughs> I felt so low. <laughs> I don't think I've ever felt so stupid since that time. But the point was, and the reason why I share it with people, these great teachings, innovative, based on the suttas, but in his own way of expression. That's why I tell it to you. What's the answer to the question why? There's nothing. Do you understand? No, you don't. Okay, let's go. <laughs> so anyway, that's just giving us some the wisdom born of silence, peace and stillness. And sometimes you get these weird questions. That's how Ajahn Chah would teach. Innovative, great to be around. And never boring. And also, some things you remember forever. Joy. As a Tibetan monk famously said, when I make people laugh, when they have their mouth open, only then can I put in the pill of Dhamma. <laughs> okay, I think maybe. Oh, was there another question before we go? No, you want to go to bed? Okay, yeah, I think so. So somebody I'll put the hand up and say, can we go now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. So we'll see you all tomorrow. Tomorrow morning, what happens? Wake up at 6, that's easy, isn't it? 6.15. Goodness gracious. <laughs> is that sort of obligatory? We all have to wake up at 6.15 or is it optional? 6.16. <laughs> you know, we get up at, actually we're pretty lax in Australia. We used to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning in Thailand every morning. Over in Australia, we get up at four o'clock in the morning. People say, do you have to get up at four o'clock? I say, no, it's optional. You can always get up before four o'clock. <laughs> okay, anyway, so we have some sitting at 6.45 and the breakfast at 7.30. And then we have a, yes, what it says here, 7.30 breakfast, work meditation, clean up and rest, at 9.30, Dharma talking instructions. Okay, whatever. Anyway, so... Um, we could be here early, 6.15, get here 6.30 to meditate. So anyway, for meditation, please excuse me, but the 
when the Buddha was sitting under the Bodhi tree, about to get in line, imagine if the bell went and said, okay, get out of, stop sitting, uh, Buddha, now we're doing walking. <laughs> Sit down again, bang, gong. Imagine that, you're just about to get enlightened and gong. <laughs> <laughs> and quite frankly, sometimes the, you know, Ajahn Chah had the, the stick for the gong and sometimes it was too long. You know, so my legs were aching, my back was hurting, I really wanted to go to bed or do something else. And he still hadn't rung the gong. So I had this plan. This plan. Remember the old slingshots? <laughs> so I made, well I didn't actually do it, I thought of making one and actually practicing and practicing until my aim was really accurate. It had to be really accurate. And when I was sitting in the back there, when everyone had their eyes closed, <laughs> bong! <laughs> <laughs> and before I could shark and find out what was going on, bow, 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 and out. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where my mind was wandering <laughs> to, <laughs> when I couldn't stand sitting any longer. So anyway, but okay, so we can bow and go now. Okay, good, okay. I could take off my Madonna earpiece. There you go. Very good.